Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, uh, February the 6th, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We like thank all of our listeners for tuning in now once again to yet another edition uh, of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report uh, with dispatches on the 35th Ordinary Summit of the African Union in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, where a debate on the controversial observer status granted to the State of Israel last year by the AU Commission Chair was suspended. The Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has once again put forward the demand for a permanent seat uh, for the African continent on the United Nations Security Council. The Regional Intergovernmental Authority on Development in East Africa says it will appoint an envoy to the Republic of Sudan. And a statue erected in France honoring a 19th century Algerian anti-colonial freedom fighter has already uh, been defaced. In the second hour, we continue our commemoration of African American History Month with the re-examination of the lifetimes and contributions of journalist, educator, and organizer Ida B. Wells Barnett. We then look in depth uh, at the proceedings of the ongoing African Union Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Timbu 
Because you are too near. Nana boy, go go yo.
savais que c'était comme ça Ou je savais que c'était à recommencer Tous les temps faut changer de temps en temps faut compliquer Bato Batu Naka Et Pai Bolingo Oui Pai Badou Loris et la Congolaise Tango Moye Bimaka Kukabula Mikolo Nayaka Awanase Koluka Motemanaye Nani mi penamoni c'est créé à l'origine, les gentillesses, il y a une catinée, catinée,
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Viva La Musica, uh, led by Papa Wemba. And uh, you've been listening to uh, music from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the African Union 35th uh, Ordinary Summit uh, that uh, has been taking place over the last two days in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where the African Union headquarters is located and the African Union Commission is chaired. Uh, Diplomats uh, say that the African Union has suspended a debate on whether to withdraw Israel's accreditation, despite growing calls on the bloc to overturn last year's decision to grant the apartheid regime an observer status. The Israeli question has been suspended for now, and instead there will be a committee set up to study the issue. Now, the international press has been reported uh, that uh, this uh, was said by a diplomat earlier today on the closing day of the African Union's annual summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The crisis began last July when uh, the African Union Commission Chair, Musa Faki Mahatma, accepted Israel's observer status in the African Union, triggering simmering tensions within the body. Now, reports that have come out uh, in regard to the African Union summit, diplomats said that the six-member committee will include South Africa and Algeria, who oppose Israel's accreditation, as well as Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo, who supported it. Cameroon also asked to be on the committee, while South Africa requested the inclusion of Nigeria as well, diplomats said. As the summit uh, opened uh, yesterday, Palestinian Prime Minister Mohamed Shaye uh, said uh, Israel should never be awarded for its violation and for the apartheid regime it does impose on the Palestinian people. Your Excellencies, I'm sorry to report to you that the situation of the Palestinian people has only grown more precarious. The decision to grant Israel an observer status is a reward that Tel Aviv does not deserve, and we call for this decision to be withdrawn. He said, uh, Palestinian resistance groups called on the African Union to overturn the decision to grant Israel an observer status at the Pan-African bloc. Ahmed Bahar, Deputy Speaker of the Palestinian Legislative Council, also asked the African Union to overturn the decision. The Palestinian people, the Arab and Muslim nations, and the world's free people are awaiting an African decision expelling the occupation from the Union and severing all ties with it, Bahar said in a statement uh, yesterday. Back in July, Israel's accreditation drew a sharp rebuke from powerful members of the African Union, including South Africa and Algeria which argued that it contracted or contradicted uh, AU statements supporting the occupied Palestinian territories. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, in regard to the African Union summit, uh, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, called for fair representation of Africa on the important international bodies like the United Nations Security Council. Meanwhile, he has proposed uh, for the establishment of an African Union media house to share its narrative and combat misleading stereotypes. In his opening speech at the 35th Ordinary Session of the African Union Assembly yesterday, uh, Dr. Ib stated that Africa's voice on the world stage needs to be heard loud and clear. Africa must also be represented on important international bodies, he added. Today, 
more than seven decades after the creation of the United Nations, uh, Africa remains a junior partner without meaningful input or role in the system of international governance. The Premier said, adding that this is particularly true of the United Nations where Africa lacks representation on the United Nations Security Council and is underrepresented in a variety of manners. <clears throat> and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In other news, the East Africa Group, uh, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, said they are well-placed to mediate a Sudanese-owned solution of the political crisis there and recommended its leaders to appoint a special envoy for Sudan. The recommendation was made in a report prepared by a fact-finding mission that accompanied the EGOT Executive Secretary, Workne Yebiehu, during his visit uh, to Sudan, uh, which took place uh, between January the 29th and February the 1st, EGOT is for the time being perceived as an honest broker, acceptable to all sides to mediate and lead the engagement between the different parties. Read the report, the proposition to appoint a special envoy for Sudan should be discussed and approved by a summit the EGOT leaders should hold next March in Uganda. And finally, in regard to developments uh, in the North African state of Algeria in regard to its relationship with the former colonial power of France, the lower part of the steel sculpture in the town of Abiyis, uh, where Emile Abdel Kader was imprisoned from 1848 to 1852, was badly damaged in the attack, which uh, <clears throat> comes in the midst of an election campaign dominated by harsh rhetoric on immigration and Islam. Uh, that is a result of vandals in central France who attacked a sculpture of an Algerian military hero who resisted France's colonization of the North African country in the 19th century. This took place just hours before it was inaugurated uh, on yesterday as a symbol of Franco-Algerian reconciliation. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron said in a statement that, quote, let us remember what unites us. The Republic will not erase any trace or name from its history. It will not forget any of its works. It will not tear down any statues. And Boyce Mayor Terry Boutard said he was ashamed of those responsible and decided to proceed with the inauguration ceremony regardless. Police said no one had claimed responsibility uh, for uh, the vandalism. The commission, uh, the sculpture was commissioned to coincide with the 60th anniversary of Algeria's national independence from France, uh, one after a brutal eight-year liberation war that continues to poison relations between the two states. It was proposed by historian Benjamin Storr, uh, who was tasked by President Macron with coming up with ways to heal the memories of the war and 132 years of French rule in Algeria. The silhouette of the Islamic scholar-turned-military leader who resisted French rule but was later as a hero in France for his defense of Christians in the Middle East, looks across the Loire River at the castle where he was imprisoned. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches 
the numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, blogs, and websites throughout the world. Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. Uh, if you'd like to log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, February the 6th, 2022, just go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
back, and uh, that was uh, Detroit's own uh, the Motown sound via Inkster, Michigan, of uh, the Marvelettes, Danger, a Heartbreak, Straight Ahead. And uh, this is uh, African American History Month in the United States, and of course, uh, we commemorate African American history and African history throughout the entire length and breadth of the year, every single month and every single week. Nonetheless, uh, after American History Month uh, had its origins in 1926 with Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who was the founder of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. And uh, he also started the Journal of Negro History uh, in 1916 and the Association for the Study of uh, Negro Life and History in 1915. And in 1926, uh, he started Negro History Week 50 years later. In 1976, the U.S. government uh, endorsed uh, this uh, commemoration, which has largely been confined to the African-American community, as a federal commemoration and recognition during the month of February as African-American History Month. Today, we're going to look at uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, a pioneering, uh, distinguished uh, educator, uh, literary figure, journalist, organizer, anti-racist, and anti-lynching fighter, fighter, suffragette, uh, who lived between 1862 and 1931. Uh, This is a panel discussion on Ida B. Wells uh, Barnett, who was born uh, in uh, Mississippi during the period of the Civil War, before uh, the collapse of the system of African enslavement. Uh, She attended uh, Russ College in Lair, of course, uh, taught in Memphis and the Shelby County School District and later became a journalist and a public figure and an organizer. Let's listen to this panel discussion uh, on uh, the life, legacy, times, and contributions of Ida B. Wells Barnett. This is the obituary of Ida B. Wells, published in the New York Times. It was not all that unusual when in 1892, a mob dragged Thomas Moss out of a Memphis jail in his pajamas and shot him to death over a feud that began with the game of marbles. But as lynching changed history because of its effect on one of the nation's most influential journalists, who was also the godmother of his first child, Ida B. Wells. Wells is considered by historians to have been the most famous black woman in the United States during her lifetime, even as she was dogged by prejudice, a disease infecting Americans from coast to coast. She pioneered reporting techniques that remained central tenets of modern journalism. And as a former slave who stood less than five feet tall, she took on structural racism more than half a century before her strategies were repurposed, often without crediting her during the 1960s civil rights movement. Wells was already a 30-year-old newspaper editor living in Memphis when she began her anti-lynching campaign, the work for which she's most famous. After Moss was killed, she set out on a reporting mission, crisscrossing the South over several months as she conducted eyewitness interviews and dug up records on dozens of similar cases. Her goal was to question a stereotype that was often used to justify lynchings that black men were rapists. 
Instead, she found that in two-thirds of mob murders, uh, rape was never an accusation. And she often found evidence of what had actually been a consensual interracial relationship. She published her findings in a series of fiery editorials in the newspaper she co-owned and edited, the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight. The public, it turned out, was starved for her stories and devoured them voraciously. The journalist, the mainstream trade publication that covered the media, named her the princess of the press. Readers of her work were drawn in by her fine-toothed reporting methods and language that even by today's standard was apparently bold. There has been no word equal to it in convincing power. Frederick Douglass wrote to her in a letter that hatched their friendship. I have spoken, but my word is feeble in comparison. That's Frederick Douglass. He was referring to writing like the kind that she published in the free speech in May 1892. Wells wrote, nobody in this section of the country believes the threadbare old lie that Negro men rape white women. Instead, Wells saw lynching as a violent form of subjugation, an excuse to get rid of Negroes who were acquiring wealth and property and thus keep the race terrorized and the nigger down, she wrote in her journal. Wells was born into slavery in Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1862, less than a year before emancipation. She grew up during Reconstruction, Reconstruction, that is, the period when black men, including her father, were able to vote, ushering black representatives into state legislatures across the South. One of eight siblings, she often tagged along to Bible school on her mother's hip. In 1878, her parents both died of yellow fever, along with one of her brothers, and at 16, she took on caring for the rest of her siblings. She supported them by working as a teacher after dropping out of high school and lying about her age. She finished her own education at night and on the weekends. Around the same time, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was largely nullified by the Supreme Court, reversing many of the advancements of Reconstruction. The anti-black sentiment that grew around her was ultimately codified in Jim Crow. It felt like a dramatic whiplash, said Troy Duster, Wells' grandson, who is a sociology professor at the University of California, Berkeley and New York University. She cuts her teeth politically in this time of justice, 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 and then injustice. Observing the changes around her, Wells decided to become a journalist during what was a golden era for black writers and editors. Her goal was to write about black people for black people, about black people for black people, in a way that was accessible to those who, like her, were born the property of white owners and had much to defend. Her articles were often reprinted abroad as well as in more than 200 black weeklies then in circulation in the United States. Whenever possible, Wells named the victims of racist violence and told their stories. In her journal, she lamented that her subjects would have otherwise been forgotten by all save the night wind, no memorial service to bemoan their sad and horrible fate. Wells also organized economic boycotts long before the tactic was popularized by other, mostly male, civil rights activists who are often credited with its success. In 1883, she was forced off a train car reserved for white women. She sued the railroad and lost on appeal before the Tennessee Supreme Court, after which she urged African Americans to avoid the trains and later to leave the South entirely. That sound familiar? Mm -hmm. I'm editorializing it. Back to the script. Okay. 
She also traveled to Britain to rally her cause, encouraging the British to stop purchasing American cotton and angering many white Southern business owners. Wells was fierce in conversation, was as fierce in conversation as she was in her writing, which made it difficult for her to maintain close relationships, according to her family. She criticized people, including friends and allies whom she saw as weak in their commitment to the causes she cared about. She didn't suffer fools, and she saw fools everywhere. <laughs> That's her grandson saying that. <laughs> One exception was her husband and closest confidant, Ferdinand L. Barnett, a widower who was a lawyer and a civil rights activist here in Chicago. After they married in 1895, Barrett's activism took a back seat to his wife's career. Theirs was an atypically modern relationship. He cooked dinner for the children most nights, and he cared for them while she traveled to make speeches and organize. Later in life, Wells fell from prominence, prominence as she was replaced by activists like Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, who were more conservative in their tactics and thus had more support from the white and black establishments. Ta -ta -ta. She, uh, she helped to found prominent civil rights organizations, including the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, and the National Association of Colored Women, only to be edged out of their leadership. During the final years of her life, living in Chicago, Wells ran for the Illinois State Senate but lost abysmally. Despite her ebbing influence, she continued to organize around causes such as mass incarceration, working for several years as a probation officer until she died of kidney disease in March 25th, on March 25th, 1931, at the age of 68. Wells was threatened physically and rhetorically constantly throughout her career. She was called a harlot, a courtesan. Did I even say that right? I should have read that word before I got up to Somebody said, who, I should, I'm supposed to be a journalist, right? A courtesan? Thank you, Mama, a courtesan. I appreciate Sylvia Ewan. Thank you. <laughs> For her frankness about uh, interracial sex. Uh, after her anti-lynching editorials were published in the free speech, she was run out of the South. Her newspaper ransacked and her life threatened. But her commitment to chronicling the experience of African Americans in order to demonstrate their humanity remained unflinching. And this is a quote directly from Ida B. Wells. She says, if this work can contribute in any way toward proving this, and at the same time arouse the conscience of the American people to demand justice to every citizen and punishment by law for the lawless, I shall feel I have done my race a service. She wrote that after fleeing Memphis. Other considerations are minor. Let's put our hands together for the legacy of Mrs. Ida B. Wells. That piece, that article is by Caitlin Dickerson, Ida B. Wells, who took on racism in the Deep House with powerful reporting on lynchings. It was published March 8th of this year after the New York Times went back and looked at all of the women and people of color and marginalized people in this country who were not properly memorialized. And they went back and wrote these obituaries. And what better way to begin our panel in this evening uh, with a round of applause Please welcome our panelists. Thank you.
Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, it's just a great honor to be on stage with all these dynamos. Um, so we're going to talk for about 30 minutes, and then we're going to turn it over to Q&A. Um, I used to live in Bronzeville, walking distance from here, and when I was looking for my condo, I was like, okay, this is right around the corner from Robert Abbott's house, and I'm in the same neighborhood as Ida B. Wells. Like, that really meant something to me to come back to this this neighborhood. I don't know when I first learned about her. I just think she was in my psyche being from here and then wanting to be a journalist. Um, Eve, what what's your first memory of Ida B. Wells? You know, I think I'm like you. I don't ever remember learning about her. I feel like she's one of those people that was always in my consciousness. But I think it's special when, uh, as adults, we get to, I think it's important for us to visit and revisit the histories that we've taken for granted and the people that we thought that we knew. So I've been really enjoying, um, in the last several years, kind of revisiting my own relationship to Ida B. Wells and understanding her in a black feminist tradition, in a Chicago tradition. Um, so I feel like I'm always learning more about her. Uh, what would you say your relationship to her is now? You know, um, so if you've heard me talk this year, you know that I'm thinking a lot about ghosts and all the different places that ghosts reside. So um, Ida B. Wells uh, lived on 36th and King Drive from 1919 until 1929, and she passed in 1931. Um, and so as I've been, as I was writing Ghosts in the Schoolyard and um, thinking about Bronzeville a lot, I feel like I've been grateful for her spirit and the way that it inhabits uh, the work that we do now. Nicole? I think about this a lot, and I also cannot remember exactly. I, I have this image of sometime in elementary school, it was during Black History Month, and they put up like five black people, uh, and she was one of them. <laughs> and it was like a, like one of those cameo-shaped, like oval-shaped photos that was on the wall, and I don't even remember how they described her. I don't know if they described her as a journalist or a civil rights activist. I just remember her name. But So I knew her name, but I didn't really know exactly what she did, which tells you how good we learned about black history. <laughs> um, and then I was in college, and I would just go to the college bookstore and just look at books that other professors whom I wasn't taking, I was nerdy, uh, were teaching, and I came across her memoir. And I hadn't read really any memoirs written by black women of that era. Um, and I was thinking about being a journalist, so I got the memoir. And then when I read it, I was like, holy shit, like, I didn't know that black women acted like that back then. Um, you know, to, to think of someone who's born into slavery, who is uh, living in a time where women didn't have the right to vote, black people had gotten the right to vote, but were struggling to actually use that right to vote, um, that she hyphenated her name, that she turned down all her suitors, that she marries a feminist, that she's a suffragist, that she's a civil rights activist, that she's like an investigative reporter who has the courage to like go into places where they have literally just strung black people up and killed them and asked questions. I, I mean, you just, I don't know women who would do that now necessarily. So I think it was just something about that where um, she just, all, she stuck with me ever since then because any, 
there weren't a lot of templates uh, for what I wanted to do. I didn't grow up seeing any ideas or any uh, examples of black women investigative reporters. And sadly, I kind of had to go back to the 1800s to even have that, but if you had to go back in time, she was the most amazing one. I've also heard you refer to her as your spiritual grandmother. I do. <laughs> I finally got the blessing of the family, so now I don't have to feel the <laughs> family now. At first I was I like, somebody's going to somebody's gonna bust down and be like, stop claiming my grandmother. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really do, you know, when, when, when her great-grandson said that she didn't suffer fools, I was like, yeah, that sounds like myself. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think about her a lot, and I really do think she guides my work because she had such a strong sense of what was right and what was wrong. And what I also loved about her, she refused, you know, she refused to be bougie, right? She, she, she was not going to separate herself from the less educated and the poor amongst her people in a way that a lot of folks, when they get some prominence, they do. And I think that's always been the model. Um, so clearly, that's why my Twitter name is Ida Bay Wells, in honor of her. Um, <laughs> I mean, I commissioned a portrait of my daughter with Ida B. Wells in the background. Like, I'm kind of obsessed You're all in. with her. I really, <laughs> all in. She was on my birthday cake two years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's, she was just amazing. And, and I think it's been so fulfilling to see her getting some due finally, um, that people know who she is. I mean, still on Twitter, some people think my name is Ida, which I find to be very annoying, um, because I'm like, you still don't know who she is at this point, but I think it's been really gratifying to see that. Michelle, you grew up knowing about your, gra your great-grandmother, but not being lectured about her. You come from a, a big family, um, and four generations have tried to honor and protect and amplify who she is. Can you talk about some of those efforts um, in regards to maintaining her legacy? Right. Um, well, it has been, maintaining uh, my great-grandmother's legacy has been a family effort, and it was a family effort, it seemed like, for a very long time. Um, after, I mean, my great-grandmother my great died in 1931, and it was a depression. And my grandmother, her daughter, was her youngest uh, child out of four children. And my grandmother had five children in the middle of the Depression, and she actually became a widow. So she, it was not easy for her to raise her family and also try to make sure that her mother's legacy was known. I mean, that's just anybody who's a parent, I'm sure you can imagine that's not easy. And so... But my, my grandmother is the one out of the four children, I guess, who took the interest in trying to do what she could um, to make sure that her mother was remembered. And so my dad told me when he was growing up, he remembered his mother, who's my grandmother, working in the margins of her life in, the, in between raising five children to um, edit the manuscript of her mother's autobiography. And it finally was published in 1970 um, by the University of Chicago, so almost 40 years from the time her mother died until the uh, autobiography was published. So that's dedication for you uh, when it comes to making sure that your family is remembered, your family member is remembered. And then after the, um, after the book was published, my grandmother 
did a lot of, participated in a lot of um, auto, of, um, what do you call them? <laughs> um, interviews where, you, where, where oral history, that's what I'm thinking of, oral history projects so that it could be documented also at the Schlesinger Library in, at Radcliffe, um, their tapes, and then also um, I found one online with Studs Terkel did an interview of my grandmother, and she also did some speaking, but she was an older woman at that point. My father's generation took up the mantle after my grandmother died in 1983. Um, my parents' generation in 1988 established the Ida B. Wells Memorial Foundation, and they started off with uh, offering journalism um, awards, and then we eventually segued into giving awards to college students to help the next generation get their education at Ida's alma mater, Russ College in Holly Springs, Mississippi. They also, my father's generation, uh, were very big supporters of Paula Giddings, writing her seminal uh, biography, only 800 pages, mm -hmm. um, of Ida's story. And they also were very involved with the documentary film that was PBS film on the American Experience series. My generation has continued the foundation. I, as a writer, uh, edited two books with my great-grandmother's original writings because I wanted to take her work out of the archives and make it available for everybody. Um, and what else? Oh, my God. Um, we've done a lot. Oh, there's a, there's a museum, uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett Museum in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is the house that Ida was born on that property. So if any of you ever in Memphis, it's only about a 30-minute drive south of Memphis to get to Holly Springs. And we, um, we support that museum. And then the next generation after me, one of my cousins wrote a play about Ida's experience with the railroad. So that's four generations after my great-grandmother that are just continuing. And I think what, what our approach is, is not about look at us, our family's so great, and, my great, and, our, and Ida was um, just this one person that needs to be memorialized. This is about black history, it's about American history. And we can't let other people erase us. And so that's what our family's about. You've also told me that there was a period where you struggled about your own identity um, and people making assumptions about who you are because this was your great-grandmother. Can you share a little bit about that journey? Well, there have been times when uh, people want to know about my great-grandmother and they want to talk to me about my great-grandmother. and they want to talk to me about my great-grandmother, and they want to talk to me about my great-grandmother. And I'm like, hello, I'm here. <laughs> like, I, I'm Michelle, you know. So there, that's been a little bit of a struggle for me, for people to see me, Michelle, not me, a vessel that, that, that's connected to the person they really want to know about. Um, so, and that, and that is, it's a continuing struggle, and... Um, it's an honor for me to be related to her, and I'm very happy that people are interested in her, and they, you know, they, they're thirsty for knowledge. Um, but, but I'm sure most people who are related to somebody who is famous, it, it is a little bit of a um, attention of wanting people to remember who your ancestor was, but also being seen as a separate individual person. 
Um, a couple of years ago, when people were voting in the presidential election, uh, a lot of women were making pilgrimages, a pilgrimage to Susan B. Anthony's grave. And I had a friend here email me and say, will you go with me to visit Ida B. Wells' grave right in um, Oakwood Cemetery? So we laid flowers and, you know, had, had a moment. Um, we heard the, the obit, and we've, I mean, there's so many threads of her life to talk about, but let's talk about her as this black feminist icon. Can I, <laughs> you know what, I can't believe, this is um, just going back to the two questions ago, I can't believe that I forgot about the monument. Oh, <laughs> oh we're going to talk about that. Yeah. We're going to talk about it. I'm saving oh, okay. that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, I'll pick up that thread. I mean, you know, um, it is still a struggle for black women in 2018 in the 21st century to be recalled, remembered, and visible at the intersection of our identities, right? And um, there are still so many moments where black women are excluded or marginalized from conversations about racial justice and excluded or marginalized from conversations about gender-based justice. And it's so inspiring, but also um, instructive and frustrating to think about the legacy of Ida B. Wells and the ways in which she was um, marginalized and pushed aside by some people who we consider American heroes, um, people like Susan B. Anthony, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who was, who was my you know, spiritual grandfather. Um, and it's frustrating to think about the fact that one of the reasons why this moment of her legacy bubbling back up has to happen is because she was actually intentionally erased from the narrative because by virtue of being a black woman mm -hmm. who insisted on the fullness of both of those identities. And for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, a lot of the, what we think about the, the heroes of the women's suffrage movement, um, many of those white women explicitly did not want black women to be part of the conversation because they were afraid that if we bring up this race stuff, right, it's going to complicate things and you all just need to wait till later. Let us get the vote first, right? And that echoes so many conversations we hear today, um, both from black men and white women around the conversations of just wait, we'll deal with y'all later, right? Without the understanding that our issues are also race issues and our issues are also gender issues. So I think it's really important for us to uplift her existence at that intersection and to remind ourselves that um, many of the folks that we idolize also have this complicated history of erasing others and to make sure that as we look around in our contemporary moment that we don't allow other people to be erased in the same way. And when we were listening to the obit. When we were listening to the obit and they mentioned Du Bois and who's the other person they mentioned? Booker T. Washington. Yeah, like Du Bois. We mouthed and they were men. Like right. it wasn't like that that wasn't explicitly said in right. the obit. It's like, oh she was just other black, no, well, those were, those were black men. Right, right. It wasn't just that her, uh, the way it was framed in the obituary was still, um, mm -hmm. well, their tactics weren't as radical as hers, and so that's why it's like, well, you know, that's Which not is the only true. reason. Which is true. But, yeah. I mean, I think about, like, my, you think about the, the role of black women in, in the conversations that are being had even today, and the way that the media reports, women are doing this. Well, no, not black women. Um, that black women are constantly erased. We're either just lumped in as black, as if we have no gender, or we're erased altogether, which was a similar struggle that she went through. Like my, my all-time favorite story of hers is uh, with the suffragists' march in Washington, D.C. 
where they want uh, black women to be supporting their larger movement uh, for voting rights, but then when they get to the march, because they're afraid of white Southern women want a segregated march, they tell her that they have to march in the back. So she stands on the sideline and disappears, and then when the march starts, she pushes her way to the front of the march. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that story, but it also speaks to the struggle. I, I, I was just speaking about Ida B. Wells the other day. I started an a investigative news training organization named after Ida B. Wells. And I was speaking about it, and, and we always get this question, like, why, why do you think people don't know about her? And I was like, because she is a black woman. Black women are always erased. We don't, when we think about the NAACP and its anti-lynching campaign, she is the reason the NAACP had an anti-lynching campaign, and she gets completely written well, out of what, that history. Well, that's why the NAACP was, was started. Right. But she, you don't hear her at all, and she is the reason that the organization exists and that we even knew that there was an anti-lynching campaign. And so you see that just again and again, and I think you still see black women struggling to be heard. When black women are advocating, they are advocating for everyone, right? We are the perfectors of this democracy, and yet we are never getting the credit for that work, and it just goes all the way back, and, it, and, it, and you still see that now. Evie, you talk um, a bit about what Chicago was like when she moved here. Yeah, so it's really interesting. This was a, a very tumultuous time to be, to be living in Chicago. Um, and it's a, a history, a part of the city that many people don't know. So, of course, 1919 was known as the Red Summer um, because there were these race riots all across the country. And the one that happened in Chicago was the largest. Um, and the time in the, the wake of that uh, really left the city um, thinking about how could we prevent something like that from happening again. There was a, a, a commission of uh, black and white civic leaders who came together, uh, all men, uh, you know, civically serious leaders uh, who came together to um, figure out a way to kind of why did this riot happen and what could be happening to, what could happen to prevent it. Um, and it was also a time when many of the racial patterns of segregation that we see now were really being cemented in, as an as a aftermath in the fear of that kind of racial violence. And so I think it's really um, telling. And, of course, the, the riot in 1919 happened because uh, a teenage boy, Eugene Williamson, um, was killed in Lake Michigan um, which, you know, we could, the reason he, he drowned as a result of a, a group of uh, white residents who were on the beach throwing rocks um, so that he was afraid to come back onto the shore and he, he drowned, uh, which, you know, we could also consider a form of lynching. And then there were a number of, of lynchings that happened um, during the riot. And so I think it's uh, almost uh, a form of foreshadowing that this, this anti-lynching crusader who had uh, so much belief in um, the role of fighting anti-black violence uh, came to the city during this seminal time when there was a lot of anti-black violence, including uh, a, a campaign of bombings that was happening um, to any black people trying to move outside of Bronzeville, as well as real estate agents or bankers trying to help black people move outside of Bronzeville. Um, for a four-year period between 1917 and 1921, there were 58 bombings that occurred, um, which averages out to one bombing um, every 20 days for three years and eight months. So you can imagine, during the time that she's living here, um, imagine if every three weeks somebody's home is being bombed, right, for almost four years. So it was a very violent, very tumultuous time in our history. And so fast forward... Uh, 
a few decades, if even that. Um, Robert Taylor is the first black chair of the Chicago Housing Authority. Mm -hmm. He's also Valerie Jarrett's grandfather. I did not know that. Yep. Little known fact. Chicago is too small. Yep. That's mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the audience would be like, duh, everybody yeah. knows that. Yeah. No. Um, and he traveled around Europe to look at the best models of, of public housing. And I know that his family did not like what the high-rises looked like. Um, but he was very proud of the Ida B. Wells mm -hmm. development and the gardening and having public space and, and community. Um, we'll talk more about the ghost of that. Right. But because uh, it, it no longer um, exists as Ida B. Wells. Michelle, what did the family think of that development with her name on it? Well, I think at the time when it was built in 1941, um, it was considered a great honor because it was um, like innovative at the time and, and a, a really big step up from where a lot of people were living, um, the, the conditions that they were living in in Bronzeville. It was, and also the thing that made it even more of an honor was the fact that it was named after Ida B. Wells because of community. Um, asking for that, to, like pushing for that. So the, when you have a community of people that are, you know, advocating for somebody who lives in the neighborhood, then it's not just coming from the family, it's coming from outside of the family. So that was a really big honor. And I remember growing up being, having my parents drive me past the, the homes and saying, oh, this is named after your great-grandmother. And, you know, just like um, the little girl who was here earlier is like, okay, whatever, you know. Um, you know, you're just not impressed when you're six. Um, Eve me. She just means unimpressed. You're just not, you know. Remember when you're six years old. But as I've grown um, and I realize that's really not a small thing to have an entire community named after your ancestor. But as the, the homes changed um, to become almost synonymous in this city with every dereliction you can think of, I mean, it was, it was just kind of, that's how it was perceived. So it, it became sort of a double-edged sword for us because on the one hand, you know, people, are, her name is still being spoken in the city, but at the same time, it's being associated with almost exactly the opposite of what she stood for. Um, so when the homes came down, we all had mixed feelings because we're like, okay, now we can start from scratch and help people remember who Ida, the woman, was, and not Ida, the homes mm -hmm. were. Um, so, I mean, it's just unfortunate that, that the homes became uh, associated with so much negativity. And, I, and I, we all realized that there are many residents who lived in the homes who did not fit the, the negative kind of um, constant drum <laughs> that we would hear in the news. But unfortunately, that's what it became in the public space, um, in the public memory. So, you know... I don't know what else to say, but yeah, yeah. that was it. And, and so, it, you know, you're, we're talking about black women not being erased, making sure that they are known, that you have this development that's a symbolism and it's gone and there's a moment to reset, at least within the city, and say who she is. And now here we are where there is this campaign for, that's been going on for a long time, but um, to build a, a statue memorial, but has picked up 
some more traction and a street naming after her. Um, why do you think this has been the the moment? You know, besides Nicole's Twitter feed, um, <laughs> oh my god, you know, helping helping raise Talk money. About She's my hero. <laughs> oh my god, Nicole heard about the project and she just went on fire um, to help make this possible. So she deserves all the credit in the world for for um, helping really helping a lot to, to get the um, project funded. But um, as far as why, I, this is just my personal opinion, is um, I think it's a combination of the sort of demonization that's going on of the media, mm. considering that she was a journalist who operated in very violent um, time. I think some people in the field are revisiting how she operated and how she documented facts in a hostile environment and used those facts to challenge a system. Um, I think the Me Too movement has helped bring up some of the work that she was doing and people are tying what's going on today with what was going on when she was around. Um, and I also think that the state sanctioned violence that's going on in our country right now with all of these shootings um, where by police officers of unarmed people and they are not being prosecuted. Most of them are not. Um, so I think those three things are converging to help people want to re-examine how did she do what she did? What was she doing? And how did she stand up to the institutions and the um, sort of powers that be and use journalism as a weapon to fight? What's the, can you give us an update on the memorial? Um, well, thanks to Nicole's um, never-ending um, support, we, uh, she and uh, Mariam Kaba and I, the three of us, were like machines, um, and we spent about four months like aggressively working Twitter to encourage people to support the project, and so from April 8th, um, when I first sent out my first tweet, until July 16th, um, which is Ida's birthday, between the three of us, we raised $200,000 on Twitter. <laughs> and um, so, so the monument is funded. It, we, the, the total budget was $300,000. So $200,000 raised in four months versus seven years of raising 100000 before that. So it was, it was just an amazing experience for me to see how this could work. I mean, it really showed me that, that Ida has a national appeal and even international. Um, and so that was very heartwarming for me to see the level of enthusiasm that people had. I mean, some of the comments that we were receiving was yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing. We were um, like up all night that night. I know. <laughs> I think it was like a 15-hour day yeah. when we were on Twitter. Um, so, I mean, we, we raised um, $42,000 on her birthday mm -hmm. wow. on July 16th on one day. So are yeah. you at the 300000 or you have another 100000 to go? No, we no. had 100000 at the beginning yeah, okay. of 2018. So from April 8th, 2018, until okay. July 16th, we raised the other 200. And is there a location? Have yes, it will be located on 37th and Langley in a plaza area, which is almost in the middle of where the Ida B. Wells homes used mm -hmm. to be. Um, Richard Hunt who is a world-renowned sculptor, is going to do the monument. Wow. It is a monument, not a lifelike statue. Mm -hmm. It'll be um, abstract and interpretive, but it will include some images of her, um, some quotes and some biographical information. 
Um, so Richard Hunt is ready to go. He's all enthusiastic about it. And so basically from this point forward, it's up to Richard on when this will actually be completed. I mean, my hope, and I think all of our hopes, is that it will be 2019. Um, but we'll see, you know, artist, how that how it might go. You know? can, can I add something yeah. about yeah. the moment? I, I also think that all of the conversations about Confederate monuments and yeah. their removal and who are we memorializing and who are we not memorializing also really oh, help yeah. drive support for having um, this monument to a black woman when there are almost no monuments anywhere in the country to black people and certainly not to black women. So I think a lot of those conversations oh, yeah. and us just thinking about you know, who we memorial says, memorialize says everything about who we think we are That's right. and the story of America that we want to tell. And um, when we did our Twitter campaign, it was also when people were tearing these statues down, when people were having conversations about these statues, and I think that that also really helped drive enthusiasm that we need to tell a counter-narrative, uh, a more truer narrative about who this country is and has been. Yeah, that's true. We're ready for questions now. We have a first one down there. Okay. Could uh, we get the house lights up? Thank you. Um, so we're going to circulate a couple of mics around on either side. If you have a question, please raise your hand. Oh, our first one is up here. Hallie, could you grab her? Thank you. We have a question in the middle of the house. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, I was wondering how does Ida B. Wells influence you and your work today, and how do you see her in yourself? Um, you know, I guess that's for all of you want to know from all of us? Okay, great. Uh, you know, this is a really uh, scary time, um, certainly to be a journalist, to be a writer, to be a truth teller. Um, as, as long as there have been courageous people, there have been people dedicated to keeping them quiet because people like Ida B. Wells um, revealed the truth of how truly violent and horrible and horrifying much of our history is. And part of the reason these monuments are so important is, as Nicole said, to redefine our understanding of American history. And that is threatening to many people. Um, and as a result, the kind of, of backlash um, is really real. And I think for me personally, uh, thinking about Ida B. Wells and, and the way that she put herself in literal physical danger. She put her body on the line to tell stories. And remember, there's no internet in 1919, right? And so the, there's no television, none of that. And so uh, she put her life on the line to firsthand gather the true stories of how black people were murdered in cold blood and uh, was willing to, to take a lot of risks to do that. And so I think in moments when I feel afraid or uncertain about the consequences of, of my own work or my own choices, I take a lot of courage from that. Um, I mean, I could talk for like 45 minutes, but I won't. <laughs> I promise I won't. Um, I mean, one, just in terms of a, a, journalism, a journalist and craft, right? her interviewing techniques, her uh, data collection techniques. I think like she really was uh, an innovator in that way, so that legacy is very uh, important to me. But also, um, I feel like the work that I do is very hopeless overall, that I'm documenting 
um, which is what, that which is foundational to our country, so that which I think we will never rid ourselves of. And uh, mostly these days my work is on school segregation. I spend my time uh, in classrooms that um, you could not say were functioning as schools at all and where both children and teachers describe them uh, as holding cells and sometimes even I had a teacher say this is a concentration camp. Mm. Um, so I know that we are never going to do the right thing for black children, but I still have to do the work that I'm doing. And, and I think about Ida B. Wells and her anti-lynching campaign. She never got that anti-lynching legislation that she was seeking, but she still had to document, even if you don't think that your work is going to change the lives of the people who you're fighting for, you still have to document because I think she understood and I understand that what we would rather do is just ignore and pretend that we're not doing to people what we're doing to them. And um, you know what she said is the, the way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth upon them. And I think about that literally almost every single day. It's like on the bottom of my website. Like I think about it all the time. Um, and then I also think about she was going to tell the truth. And when it hurt her, she was going to tell the truth. And there are a lot of times in my career um, where I got in trouble for being outspoken, where I got called into meetings um, and told, you're writing about race too much. If you want to have a successful career, I get all, all the, uh, yeah. All of that. These days I have a lot of gloating, let's just say that. <laughs> everyone, everyone who told me I need to stop writing about race is like eating mad crow right now, but... Um, <laughs> but you think about everyone who told her she needed to stop speaking so bluntly and plainly, she needed to stop advocating, and she did not. And that's part of the reason why we didn't know about her because in the end, her unwillingness to compromise is what led her to be erased. Um, so I think about that a lot and if she had the courage to do it, then I have to have that same courage. Where's our mic? Have one right down okay. here. Uh, in doing research for a musical about the 1893 World's Fair, I found out a lot about Ida B. Wells. <laughs> and uh, I included her as one of the strongest characters in, in the musical. Uh, she, I'm just wondering about, uh, because knowing that she tried to convince the fair committee to include blacks in the Black planning. People. Excuse me? Black people. Black people, thank you. Include black people in the planning and the construction of the fair. And she really didn't succeed in that. Uh, and she, we read her writings and she sings a very powerful song about the sweet land of liberty, not the land that I see. I'm wondering how she kept her hope along with the, her anger and 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 if you want to say something about how how do you sustain hope when you feel such rage for a cause do 
going to answer that? Um, <laughs> well, your question is, uh, I, it, I think there only one can only uh, assume. Um, I mean, she was a woman of faith. She, you, you, if you read her uh, diary, you really get the sense that she was very uh, religiously grounded. Um, and I think that gave her a sense of hope and a sense of strength. Um, I think that whenever somebody decides to stand up for something, the only way they would be able to do it is to have some sense of hope that it is possible for something to change. Otherwise, what's the point of, of even trying? So, I mean, what we, what we always grew up understanding was that she had a hope that there was some sense of decency somewhere in the hearts of people in this country and overseas. She believed that on some level there would be some sense of justice. And once people knew the truth about what was going on, then there would be some sense of outrage, that there would be a sense of, of, of an effort to stop absolute just anarchy and barbarity. Um, and so when she was writing, she wasn't writing for the people who knew what was going on. She was writing for the people who did not know what was going on so that they would feel that this is not our country. This is not who we are. What kind of country is this? And so she had to have a sense of hope that people would have a reaction to that and put a stop to it. I don't have hope, so. <laughs> we have a question down here. We have a question up front. You guys give us hope to see women such as yourselves in a venue like this. That gives us hope. As long as there's life, there's hope. But to come back to um, my key question, there had been uh, an Ida B. Wells Barnett share, I think, at DePaul. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, Michael Eric Dyson held it, Laura Washington held it. Whatever, is it still going on? And, and how can we help with those kinds of initiatives so that journalists who are coming up can learn? I mean, as far as I know, it is still going on. The last person that I knew, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but the, the, the last person that I was aware of um, holding that chair was um, British. Um, and I actually, uh, I tracked him down and, and um, actually met with him in person. Um, but that was a couple of years ago. I haven't, I haven't kept up since then. But he was a very um, impressive person. Um, and, but yeah, it was interesting. He, he was British. <laughs> but I mean, he he was Afro-British, if you want to call it oh. that. You know. <laughs> All right. Okay. Important caveat. There's a question. Great. Yep. We have one more uh, time for one more question. We're gonna go right down here. Hi. Um, I'm recent. Uh, there's a young person dressed as a box of popcorn. <laughs> I'm gonna shout out. We can't hear your question, sis, but we see you and appreciate you. Um, I'm a recent college grad, hopefully becoming a writer in the future, um, but I help run a program that um, empowers, works to empower young women um, in uh, 
writing, citizen journalism, and um, digital media storytelling. And I think um, what we struggle with a lot of the time is having them believe that their voices are important and their voices are worth sharing. And um, you guys just being yourselves in, in the professions that you have are definitely inspiration. But if we could hear for them, they're here, some of them are here with us right now. Um, if you could share some words of empowerment or maybe a moment where you realize that you could use, use your voice to make change, um, that would be really helpful to people, all women of color and young high school women of color from Chicago. Um, you know, any words of encouragement? Well, I'll start, because I, I didn't answer the other question about what do I see in myself, uh, or how, what do I see about Ida in myself. I mean, obviously, I'm related to her, so people tell <laughs> me that I look like her. Um, but one of the things that I feel was passed down in my family that I feel is a part of who Ida was is um, the feeling that my voice is important. I was always told that my entire life that you have something to say and you need to say it. You need to speak up. Um, I'm related to Ida on my father's side of the family, but my mother <laughs> was always, if anybody in the audience knows Maxine Duster, you know, that she was like, oh, no, 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 no. Who's the manager? Who's the owner? <laughs> Who's in charge? And right to that person, my mom was always about, like, find out who's in charge and you write to that person, and you make sure that you let them know whatever, because you are not going to allow yourself to be treated any way different than somebody else is treated. And so that was always something that we grew up hearing, knowing that we have the same rights as everybody else, and we cannot ever allow ourselves to be disrespected, um, disregarded, marginalized. You speak up and demand respect. And that's what I always learned. So we're gonna we're gonna sneak that one last question in up there. Question. Yay! <laughs> Woo! Oh, and the popcorn. <laughs> okay. Um, my name is Dorothy Jane Tillman. I'm a 12-year-old college graduate. I just got my bachelor's of science in. The I just got my Bachelor's of Science in Humanities and I started my Master's program in Environmental Engineering last Monday. And I wanted to know what you all think as a youth we could do to, uh, to keep her memory alive or keep what she did going and to, to educate people about those type of things. Vote. You know, I'm going to answer in a way that kind of also picks up from the previous question. I think that um, it's, always remember, it's always important to remember that the histories that are passed to us are not accidental. They come to us because the people in power and people who were in positions to uplift their own importance are the ones who for a very long time have had the privilege of telling those stories. Mm -hmm. And so there are so many people like Ida B. Wells. There are so many people like Zora Neale Hurston. There are so many people like Bayard Rustin and James Baldwin and Nina Simone and Lorraine Hansberry who have been at risk 
of passing into the darkness of history because they were black or because they were women or because they were gay or because they were not palatable to the people who were telling those histories. And I think it's important to remember that all of us play a role in knowing that we are the experts in our own lives. And there is nobody who can tell your story the way you can, not one person. And to the, all the young people, you are from the city of Ida B. Wells. You are from the city of Gwendolyn Brooks. You are from the city of Natalie Moore, right? And this, this is your legacy. This is your birthright. This is your lineage. It is there for you. These are people who uplifted the importance of telling everyday people's stories. And that's something that all of us have the power to do. And I think that's how you keep this legacy alive. We have run out of time. Are there any final things you want to say to that or we're good? That just seemed like a great way to end it. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, E. Thank you, audience. Go back, go back. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is Sunday, uh, February 6, uh, 2022. We just heard a panel discussion on uh, the lifetimes and contributions and legacy of Ida B. Wells Barnett and uh, featured uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, who uh, the following year in 2019 would uh, lead uh, the 1619 Project uh, for the New York Times Magazine. Uh, that project has been expanded uh, and published, uh, republished um, just late last year uh, as a nearly 600-page uh, book uh, with numerous uh, authors, uh, poets, and photographers uh, expanding on the theme of the 1619 Project. And uh, we're commemorating African American History Month uh, this year, 2022, the commemoration stems from Dr. Carter G. Woodson, uh, his efforts as early as uh, 1915, 1916, and of course in 1926. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program uh, for this week.
Excellency Flexi Chekedi, President of the Democratic Republic of Congo and outgoing Chairperson of the African Union, Your Excellency Makisal, President of the Republic of Senegal and incoming Chairperson of the African Union, Your Excellency Musafaki Mohamed, Chairperson of the African Union Commission, Excellencies, Heads of State and Government, Distinguished Ministers, Commissioners, Excellencies Ambassadors, Invited Guests, Ladies and Gentlemen. At the outset, let me welcome you all to the land of origins on behalf of the people and government of Ethiopia. Let me also take this opportunity to celebrate our reunion in Addis Ababa after a two-year disruption caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this regard, I wish to express my appreciation to the entire leadership of our Union and particularly to His Excellency President Cyril Ramaphosa for providing exemplary leadership in our collective response to the challenge of the pandemic. Over the past two years, we have struggled not only against the human cost of the pandemic, but also an inequitable system of vaccine distribution, arbitrary travel bans, border closures, lockdowns, and misinformation about the value of vaccines. Most importantly, as Africans, we have also learned that cooperation and collaboration is vital, not only for our health, but also for our collective survival. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, our union has committed 
to undertake ambitious plans designed to transform our continent and create the Africa we want. We want a prosperous Africa based on sustainable and equitable development. We want a politically united continent that aspires to fulfill the ideals of Pan-Africanism and the vision of an African Renaissance. Fulfilling our aim of building the Africa we want through robust implementation of Agenda 2063 and its flagship project will require us to make extraordinary efforts collectively. Our theme for 2022 is nutrition and food security. Over the past year, acute food insecurity in Africa has increased by over 60% as the effect of COVID-19 continues to ag aggravate our fragile economies. Floods, droughts, desert locusts, and other climate-related natural disasters have increased food insecurity for millions of our citizens. With 60% of the world's arable land in Africa, it is of utmost importance that we need to use our natural asset to maximize agricultural output and feed our people without reliance on external assistance. In the past two years, Ethiopia has made substantial investments in intensifying in summer wheat production through irrigation. Our farmers have been able to control and manage production factors to maximize yield is using irrigation. Nationally, we have attained production over 20 million quintals of irrigation wheat farmed on over 500,000 hectares. This has generated nearly 60 billion in income to our farmers. These efforts are generating great results and will. In the imaginable future, begin to contribute to our food security and self-sufficiency despite the climate variability our region is confronted with. One of the toughest challenges we face in Ethiopia is dealing with the effect of deforestation. While a century ago, Ethiopia's forest coverage was 35%, over the past two decades, our forest coverage stands at just 4%. We believe afforestation is one of the most effective ways of climate change mitigation. Beginning in 2019, we launched a major reforestation initiative under the slogan Green Legacy. Our aim was to plant 20 billion trees across the country over the course of a four-year period. In a mere three years, we managed to plant 18 billion seedlings. And, and this year, with the Green Legacy Initiative in its final year, we will not only meet our national target, but plan to surpass the target by reaching 25 billion. Additionally, through this initiative, we have sent seedlings to neighboring countries to inspire regional efforts. If we can collaborate to spread the message of Green Legacy in the continent, and implement measures that maximize our food security and self-sufficiency, we'll be able to guarantee our citizens the basic necessity of life without reliance on 
charity. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, Africa's voice on the world stage needs to be heard loud and clear. Africa must also be represented on important international bodies. Today, more than seven decades after the creation of the United Nations, Africa remains a junior partner without meaningful input or role in the system of international governance. This is particularly true of the United Nations where Africa lacks representation on the Security Council and is underrepresented in a variety of ways. It is the right time to reform and revitalize the United Nations system to reflect current global realities and ensure that it is a more representative and equitable body. Only fair representation and transparency in those institutions can usher in a just era in multilateralism. Consistent with our Ezluini consensus of 2005, we should collectively insist that Africa's reasonable request for no less than two permanent seats and five non-permanent seats in the UN Security Council be adopted. Equally important is Africa's media representation on the international stage. Africa is often portrayed in international media negatively. The endless representation of the continent troubled by civil wars, hunger, corruption, greed, disease and poverty is demeaning and dehumanizing and likely driven by a calculated strategy and agenda. This stereotypical and negative media representation of Africa not only disinforms the rest of the world about our continent, but also shapes the way we see ourselves as Africans. Telling our own stories and shaping our own narratives must be our top priority. In this regard, I would like to propose to this August body the establishment of an African Union Continental Media House. This media house could be organized to provide authoritative news and information on our continent, fight disinformation, promote our collective agenda, and offer op opportunities for Pan-African voice to be heard. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, peace and security are critical issues affecting our continent. Despite the African Union's intensive engagement in addressing peace and security challenges of the continent, guided by the Maxim African solution to African problems, new and complex problems that undermine our unity and sovereignty continue to emerge. In this respect, the past year was particularly challenging to our continent in general and my own country, Ethiopia, in particular. Ethiopia's challenge was internal in nature and a matter of maintaining law and order. But resolution of our internal matters was made exceedingly difficult by the role played by external actors. I wish to take this opportunity to thank you all for your support, solidarity, and understanding as we underwent these trying times. 
as you are aware, despite the intransigence of the other side in this conflict, my government has taken a variety of measures to minimize the loss of life and destruction of property. We have implemented unilateral withdrawal from conflict area and used force that is necessary to ensure law and order. As a gesture of goodwill, we have released high-profile suspects with a view of creating conducive environments for peace. We shall leave no stone and turn in our search for peace in our country. Consistent with our commitment to peace, to peaceful resolution of conflict, we have recently launched an inclusive national dialogue platform with formal legislation. Our commitment to pursuing lasting and durable peace in our country shall remain steady fast. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest lesson that Ethiopia has learned over the year is that without the solidarity of our African brothers and sisters, our existence as a nation would have been at great risk. This affirms the wisdom of our forefathers and foremothers in their dream of Pan-Africanism. The old saying is true, united we stand, divided we fall. Today, we stand proud and tall as Africans in the shadow of those who struggled to liberate and unite Africa. Our steadfast unity is the anchor and the foundation of our Agenda 2063. A continent of 1.3 billion people, a substantial percentage of them young and dynamic, will drive Africa's prosperity and pull it out of poverty as we set forth in our Agenda 2063. Also, our Continental Free Trade Agreement holds the greatest promise of effectively realizing continental integration and development. The potential for increased intra-Africa trade, free movement of people, and investment and self-reliance is a beacon for Africa's renaissance. And instead of depending solely on trade out of Africa, our collective effort to boost intra-Africa trade will protect us from the fluctuation of global economy, economic and political change. Similarly, the potential for continent-wide tourism remains untapped. It is part of aspiration of five of Agenda 2063, which seeks to create an Africa with a strong cultural identity, common heritage, values, and ethics. The more we know each other, the more we are able to cooperate and resist the force that seek to divide and undermine us. You may recall, a mere two months ago, efforts were underway by some in the international community to create an atmosphere of fear to drive expatriates out of Ethiopia and discourage travel to Ethiopia. Those efforts were not successful and will not be successful. Indeed, many fellow Africans joined the Great Ethiopian Diaspora Homecoming Challenge and proved to the world that Ethiopia is a safe and culturally rich tourist destination. 
as a key pillar of our national reform agenda. Tourism potential within Ethiopia has been augmented greatly in the past two years, with many natural endowments developed to complement the historic and cultural heritage that already exists. Ethiopia remains open and welcomes all of our fellow African brothers and sisters. Finally, let me once again convey the warm welcome of the Ethiopian people and reiterate Ethiopia's commitment to do everything in our power to continue to create an enabling environment for the African Union in our collective efforts to deliver the Africa we want through robust implementation of Agenda 2063. God bless Ethiopia. God bless Africa. Thank you for your attention. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the Prime Minister of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, uh, Prime Minister Dr. Abi Ahmed, uh, speaking uh, earlier today at the 35th uh, Ordinary Summit of the African Union, uh, which concluded uh, today in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, discussing the challenges facing Africa and uh, the need for Pan-Africanism. He discussed uh, the role of the media, the need for the development of an African Union press agency that can narrate and articulate and research and disseminate uh, news uh, from an African perspective. And uh, we want to continue our coverage uh, of uh, the African Union uh, 35th uh, Summit. And uh, here's another report uh, from uh, Africa Live on the AU Summit as well as other issues. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Chinese President Xi Jinping meets with foreign leaders as high-profile diplomacy continues during the Winter Olympics. The African Union summit decries the wave of coups on the continent. And Senegal and Egypt clash tonight in the final of the Africa Cup of Nations in Cameroon. Hello and a very warm welcome to Africa Live on CGTN. I'm Lindim Tongana in Nairobi. In our top story, Chinese President Xi Jinping has been meeting with various world leaders who've come to China for the Beijing Winter Olympics. He's held talks with the President of Kyrgyzstan, Sadir Zharipov. The leaders issued a joint statement and signed a number of deals. She also had a meeting with Henri, the Grand Duke of Luxembourg, and spoke highly of bilateral exchanges. In his meeting with Prince Albert II of Monaco, she called on the two sides to deepen cooperation and uphold multilateralism. He then met the Mongolian Prime Minister, Lufthansa Namsrai Oyan Erden, saying China would likely uh, to likely promote their strategic partnership to a new level. Rory Cohen has more on talks with other leaders. China and Singapore should synergize their development strategies and aim for steady and stable ties in the post-pandemic era. That's according to Chinese President Xi Jinping during his meeting with Singapore's Halima Yacob earlier. 
Halima said the city-state aims to continue cooperating with China for regional integration, particularly in the fields of green development and the digital economy. In talks with the Polish leader Andrzej Duda, President Xi said Poland and China should tap into potential fields such as trade and investment. He said both sides should also collaborate on new technologies to bring practical cooperation to new heights. Duda said Poland attaches great importance to its economic ties with China. He said the country will continue to play an active role in promoting China-Europe relations. In President Xi's meeting with his Argentinian counterpart, Alberto Fernandez, a series of deals were signed, including the designation of the year 2022 as the China-Argentina Friendship and Cooperation Year. As the Belt and Road Initiative's newest member, President Xi said Argentina and China should work together for its high-quality development. For his part, President Fernandez upheld the One China policy and said Argentina would work closely with China within the global multilateral framework. President Xi also met with Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. President Xi said China wants to work towards a closer China-Pakistan community with a shared future. He said this would bring benefits to the people of the two countries, boost regional cooperation and contribute to world peace. Imran Khan said Pakistan will continue to actively support the construction of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and coordinate on regional security and stability. The African Union has condemned what has been a wave of coups on the continent. So far, four nations have been suspended from the bloc since mid-last year for unconstitutional changes to government. They include Mali, Guinea, Sudan and Burkina Faso. Our leaders have condemned in no uncertain terms that the African Union, the regional economic communities will not tolerate military coup d'etat in any form. No justification. And that is why you do your research at no time in the history of the African Union have we had four countries in one calendar year, in 12 months, being suspended. Mali, Guinea, Sudan, and latest, Burkina Faso. And they use this occasion, this opportunity in their deliberations to condemn the attempted coup against the government led by President Mbalo of Guinea-Bissau. Now, the 35th Ordinary Session of the African Union Assembly has come to a close in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. The closing session was marked with calls for continental solidarity in addressing key challenges affecting Africa. CGTN's Daniel Arabmoy has more. The 35th Ordinary Assembly of the AU discussed an array of issues, including the need to address the emerging wave of coup d'etat and the threat of terrorism. And it's imperative that there is a response that matches the urgency of this situation. The same thing with respect to unconstitutional change of government and coups. Uh, it is unprecedented uh, in the 20 years uh, existence of the African Union that we have come to see five or six military seizures of power in less than one year between April 2021 to now January or February 2022. Uh, this is unprecedented. The summit discussed a broad overview of the State of the Union, touching on issues related to health, governance, peace and security. 
In relation to COVID-19, the Assembly tasked the Africa CDC and the African Medicines Agency to lead the way in promoting Africa's public health. The Assembly noted that COVID-19 pandemic led to a contraction in growth of 2.1% in 2020 and an increase in the debt ratio by 10 points of GDP. On terrorism and governance, officials called for new approach in addressing insecurity. The Sahel is, is awash with terrorist activities and, uh, and killings of civilians. And also, uh, Nigeria has Boko Haram, which was not there before. On multilateralism, the Assembly noted they increased the interest in the continent. This, they say, will hopefully soon be translated into substantial development in favor of Africa. Daniel Arabmoy, CGTN, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. In less than two hours, Egypt will square off with Senegal for a chance to lift the African Cup of Nations title. Record winners Egypt will be looking to extend their title tally to eight as Senegal look to lift their maiden trophy. Despite both teams starting slow, they seem to have picked up tempo in the course of the tournament, which looks to set up a thrilling final. The final will also see Liverpool forwards Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah go head-to-head in what is seen to be an exciting last match of the tournament. Well, let's bring you more on this. We're now joined by CGTN reporter Mohamed Abubakar in Yaoundé, our Egyptian correspondent Adal El Makhroui in Cairo, and media professional Abubakar Vazi Jiba in Dakar, Senegal, for the latest on the mood just before this final takes place. Now, let's start in Yaoundé with you, Mohamed. What is the mood like in and around the stadium as we edge closer to the final? Well, we're less than uh, two hours into the final now, I'm feeling uh, both excited and, you know, anxiety kicking in. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, being able to watch this uh, matchup between these two great nations, uh, both sets of fans, uh, as you can see behind me, are uh, entering the stadium. Uh, Senegalese fans have never been able to see their team uh, lift this trophy, so they are expecting to come out of uh, this uh, game victorious. Egypt fans, on the other hand, have been waiting for a long time. Yes, they are the record holders of uh, this competition, but it's been over a decade now. These are fans that are used to seeing Egypt do so well in this competition, and they're hoping that they can be able to, to get that uh, record extension of, uh, of seven titles to eight by the end of tonight. Sadly, by the end of tonight, there's going to be a winner and a loser, so one set of fans will be celebrating, another one will be, you know, hurting. Uh, uh, and Cameroon fans are also here after winning their third-place match uh, last night. They're, they're, they're coming into this match uh, hoping to also see uh, the duel between two of the best African players in Sadio Mane for Senegal and Mohamed Salah. So it's promising to, to, become, uh, to be a, a fantastic uh, final for the neutrals as well. Indeed, it all comes down to this. And as you say, there can be only one winner. Adele, let's come to you in Cairo now. Egypt looking to extend their AFCON title record to eight. How are fans there feeling heading into this very thrilling and exciting match? It is quite a thrilling scene. The Egyptian capital streets are completely frozen. Huge traffic jam as everyone is trying to get to their destination, the local uh, place where they will be watching um, the, 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 the most exciting football match out through this year for the Pharaohs. As you see here, I'm in one...
six huge screens like this one scattered and thousands of people just in this place alone all eagerly watch, waiting uh, for the match. They've, al they've already taken um, their seats, they've already taken their places and they have also booked extra seats for their family members and their friends who are about um, to join as the time approaches. It's two hours, uh, about two hours for the big game to go but people here have been waiting since the morning on social media. People are all commenting about how anxious they are and they can't wait for the 10 to 9 hours from the morning to the match time to pass quickly as everyone really wants to see the ninth, the, uh, the eighth title being lifted by the Pharaohs and at the same time eager and anxious uh, to make sure or they cannot really anticipate anything other than having a victory for tonight. So it's a big football night for all Egypt and everyone is staying hooked hours before the match to begin even when there are thousands of kilometers away where the action is happening in Yawunda. Indeed, a big football night indeed and I imagine just as much excitement and anxiety over in Dakar. Let's go to Dakar, Senegal now, where we are joined by Babakar Vazi Duba. Uh, tell us, uh, Babakar, Senegal, of course, is chasing their very first AFCON title. But does this in any way make the team the underdogs of today's match? Well, as you said, um, today, like, it's a great day for us because, like, um, we are um, at the final. Um, of this Cup of Nation, and everybody's excited. Like the streets are painted in in the colors of Senegalese flag. You know, jersey are sold everywhere. You know, we are all waiting for this cup. You know, um, and like, as you know, like it's been 16, um, 60 years like that we've waiting. You know, for this Cup of Nation, and we hope that this time it will be ours. And um, everybody's praying. I can I can tell you like. It, if you are in the streets, in every car, like there's a flag of Senegal, you know, I mean, everybody's excited. We are all behind our team, supporting them 100% and hoping that this time it will be the best time for us and we will, we will actually win this, you know, Cup of Nation. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Babakar Vazijiba, joining us there from Dakar. And, of course, we are also joined by Adel Al-Makhriwi in Cairo and uh, Mohamed Abu Bakar live in Yawunde, Cameroon. Right, now let's move on to some other news. Britain's Prince Charles has led tribute to his mother, Queen Elizabeth, on the 70th anniversary of her accession to the throne. He said it was an opportunity for the country to unite and celebrate her service to the nation. He also thanked the Queen for her sincere wish that the Duchess of Cornwall becomes Queen Camilla when he, as the Prince of Wales, becomes the King. Camilla now regularly represents the royal family alongside Charles during official duties. Time now for a short break. You are watching Africa Live. Three generations of a Chinese family are making their mark on Kenya's culinary scene. Here in Kenya, three generations of a Chinese family are making their mark on the country's culinary scene. 
They are part of a diaspora community that's adapting to life in the East African nation while bringing their traditions and celebrations with them. Let's take a look. I think in the beginning uh, we are sort of like a very uh, uh, alien type of uh, community. Now gradually they accepted us as a part of Kenya. I was born in Mombasa and my favorite foods are all these things that you see from childhood. And I used to eat ugali and uh, sukuma wiki, uh, the, the local food. And uh, although I'm Chinese and my parents cook Chinese food, but I love the local food. My father was born in Hong Kong and during the Second World War, uh, the Japanese came from the north. So mo most of the youngsters left Hong Kong. So he, he went by ship. Now, Mombasa was under British. So when he came ashore and uh, the immigration asked him, what do you do? He says, I'm an engineer. He said, all right, good. We have got the British Navy here in Kenya, at the Mombasa port. You can start work. I would say at that time, there were probably about 200 Chinese people from uh, Hong Kong side. Now, when we moved to Nairobi, we opened a restaurant at a Kenyatta Conference Center uh, called the Tin Tin Restaurant. My father and me, Tin and Tin, we started it. It's like a family business. And uh, we ran that business for 40 years. Uh, yes, in the beginning, uh, we started off like uh, Hong Kong, where we have dim sum, we have uh, you know, a cart you push around in the restaurant, serving bao and all that. But within six months, we went bankrupt. Because the local people do not eat uh, dim sum, they do not eat bao, they do not eat those food. So within six months, we have to change the menu into like spring rolls, fried spring rolls, uh, grilled chicken and all those things. Uh, it's not pure Chinese, but Chinese, Indian, uh, English mix, you know, like a fusion. Then it started working out. Now, I, I retired from Tintin restaurant about uh, three years ago. So instead of sitting at home, I thought I will run a small restaurant together with my son here. Uh, well, you know, uh, the family, they're all in Hong Kong, all the relatives. Uh, most of the Chinese goes back to, to, to China for the Chinese New Year. Now, because of the COVID, it's impossible to go back. I mean, it's 21 days quarantine, Hong Kong and China. So if you get two weeks off, three weeks off, you spend the time in quarantine. Those days the community was bigger. So we used to visit each other and these red packets and all that. The packets, uh, they put money in it, of course. And they put a note, like maybe 100 shillings, uh, close relatives maybe a thousand shillings and with a coin as well to show that uh, they call it Chutau. That means to advance you know, into a, a higher level from what you're doing. So I would say that uh, keep safe and, uh, and uh, be happy for the new year. Somalia has narrowly lost to Djibouti during a vote to decide the rotational 15 members of the African Union Peace and Security Council. Despite the loss, the attempt marks the ambitions of the Horn of African nation to return to the global stage. Mohamed Kair reports from the capital, Mogadishu. Somalia garnered 13 votes against its contender Djibouti, which managed 19 votes. 
securing the second term serving three years. The Somali government congratulated the new Peace and Security Council members. In his speech, President Mohamed Abdullahi Farmajo urged the council to focus on the threats of terrorism in the continent and come up with amicable strategies. The threat of al-Shabaab is not only a limited problem for Somalia alone, but an issue for Africa. The Peace and Security Council report must comprehensively cover the elements of al-Shabaab across Africa in order to coherently mobilize, strategize, and coordinate comprehensively to counter the threat of terrorism and violent extremism. Somalia's head of state further noted that, following the progress made towards stability, his country is gearing up to assume full responsibility for its own security by December next year. Excellencies, our pace of progress in delivering security and stability in Somalia in recent years with support from our African brothers and sisters whom I pay tribute to for their sacrifices and selflessness has meant that Somalia has succeeded to build up its capacity to assume full security responsibility independently by December 2023. Despite losing the significant Peace and Security Council seat to neighboring Djibouti, Somali citizens praised the move. It is a great idea and a step forward to contest for the seat at the AU Peace and Security Council Committee. The voting process and the competition was open. Djibouti, Uganda, Burundi and Nigeria, who are the members of the significant council, are troop-contributing countries in Somalia's peacekeeping mission AMISAM. During the past years, Somalia's quest to join the decision-making table at major international organizations has taken shape, with its application for East African bloc still on hold, while declaring its interest for the rotational UN Security Council siege. Hamid Kahir, CGTN, Mogadishu, Somalia. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has paid tribute to Mozambique for the role it played in the struggle for South Africa's liberation. Ramaphosa was in Mozambique on a, visit, uh, on a working visit on Thursday in his capacity as the chair of the South African Development uh, Community's organ on politics, defense and security cooperation. He said the two countries had much in common and needed to work together in many areas in the future for their common good. Here's CGTN's Angelo Coppola with more. Ramaphosa and his delegation joined Mozambican President Felipe Nisi to commemorate the assassination of Dr. Eduardo Mondlane, the founder and first president of the Mozambique Liberation Front. He said, make a choice when you want to come. He said, if you choose to come on holiday, you can come with your family and go and lie on the beach somewhere, eat prawns and fish. And if you come for a state visit, You'll be wearing your nice tie and we'll be having formal talks. But if you come on Heroes Day, you will be amongst comrades. And I said to President Newsy, I choose to come on Heroes Day so that I can be amongst comrades who fought in the liberation struggle. That is why I'm here today. President Ramaphosa and Newsy also visited troops that are part of the SADC security mission in Mozambique. The South African head of state said that the two countries are more than neighbors, having fought for their freedom and supported each other during their struggles. The 16th of June 1960 changed the course of your country's history 
like us the 16th of June 1976, changed the course of the struggle in South Africa and actually planted the seeds to ensure that there is freedom today in South Africa. So I saw the two parallels and said to President Musi, the 16th of June means a great deal to the people of South Africa and the people of Mozambique. So in many ways, there is a lot that is common between us. There is a lot that we can draw inspiration from and there is a lot that we should continue doing together. The business end of the relationship paints a clear picture of areas that need to be addressed. Mozambique's exports to South Africa increased from $33.1 million in 1995 to $918 million in 2019. I think the, the balance of, of trade will continue as it for a long time, but it's a matter of the production. Mozambique doesn't produ produce a lot. While South Africa is currently actively involved in helping Mozambique to deal with those insurgents in the north, the two countries have a long and mutually beneficial relationship, which is set to grow in the future. I'm Angelo Coppola for CGTN in Johannesburg, South Africa. The greatest journeys. The greatest sights. The greatest adventures. Here in Panater, this weir allows the locals to walk on water. We're far more than just TV news. We're your passport to the wonders of Africa. To bring you stories of struggle, survival and hope. So let's explore. CGDN. See the difference. How would you create your legend? On the field. On the tracks. In the arenas of Africa. Were you born to be a player? Could this moment be yours? Sports Fine. In your sports news, the director and spokesperson of the Ministry of Information. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from uh, Africa Live. Uh, we'll hear another report uh, from Africa Live as well, uh, providing additional information on the recently held uh, African Union uh, 35th uh, Ordinary Summit. Uh, let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network.
DRC President Felix Tshisekedi rushes home from the AU summit after his senior security advisor is arrested. Chinese President Xi Jinping meets with foreign leaders as high-profile diplomacy continues during the Beijing Winter Olympics. And Senegal and Egypt clash tonight in the final of the Africa Cup of Nations in Cameroon. Hello and a very warm welcome to Africa Live on CGTN. I'm Lindim Tongana in Nairobi. In our top story, we begin in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where Special Security Advisor to the Head of State, Francois Bea, has been arrested. That's according to local media. Reports indicate that he is being detained by the International Intelligence Agency. No official communication has been released to the public on the reasons behind his arrest. Well, let's get you more on this now. We are joined by CGTN correspondent Chris Ochamringa, live with us from Kinshasa. Uh, Chris, we understand that President Chisekedi is said to have rushed back home from the AU summit, and there are reports of heavy security deployment in Kinshasa. What do we know so far about what is happening and why the President's security advisor has been arrested? Well, Lindy, we've got information that President Felix Tshisekedi had to cut short his visit in Ethiopia, where he was chairing an African Union summit. Uh, after getting information about the arrest of his senior advisor on security, Francois Kabea, uh, we have been told uh, that uh, a human rights uh, organization, a human rights activist who went to visit him, says he saw him, he is being detained by the military uh, intelligence officers who interrogated him about a number of issues. We have not been told why he has been arrested, although there have been very many reports being made by other Congolese people. They're saying it was a, a major consp he was involved in a major conspiracy. There are other people who are also speculating that it could be a failed coup plot. And, but, but we haven't got any official communication from the DRC government and uh, the military services rarely give public statements about you know, the investigations because they fear it could jeopardize you know, the inquiries that they're making so far. What we know is that uh, Mr. Francois Bayer was a very powerful official in President Felix Tshisekedi's government. He uh, was appointed in 2019 to help uh, deal with the insecurity in the east of the country and he previously had served uh, under President Joseph Kabila as uh, the director of uh, the immigration department in the DRC, the DGM. And uh, prior to that, he also worked uh, under former President Mobutu Sesaseko. So he's a man with a wealth of experience in security, and his arrest has shocked very many people in the DRC. Uh, regarding the, the, the heavy deployment, we haven't, I, I've been traveling, I traveled earlier this, uh, this day from uh, the outskirts of Kinshasa. I haven't seen any extraordinary deployment of soldiers, of troops in the DRC. Uh, but perhaps it could be uh, that uh, those soldiers have been deployed in the president's residence, which is on the outskirts of, of the city, but have been around the, the, the central part, the heart of Kinshasa. I haven't seen any heavy deployment of soldiers. Lindy? So indeed a calm situation, but of course all this amid the arrest of a high-ranking uh, government member. Thank you so much for that. Chris Ochamringa, live with us from Kinshasa.
For Senegal and record winners, Egypt are set to meet in the final of the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations in Yaoundé, Cameroon on Sunday. With both teams starting slowly in the group stage of the competition, they've managed to shift gears in the knockouts to set up a thrilling final. Well, let's bring you more on this. We now speak to CGTN's Mohamed Abubakar, who is in Yaoundé. Mohamed, the hosts pulled off a great comeback to at least secure a podium place at the tournament. But what does that mean for Cameroon? It means a lot, uh, Lindy, for them. It was always going to be about fighting for pride uh, after that uh, disappointment on Thursday, being eliminated uh, in the semi-final by Egypt on their home soil. But, uh, I mean, they were, they were 3 nil uh, down uh, last night and they managed to put up a brave fight to come back to 3-3 and eventually going on to win that final. So there was a lot of uh, pride among the Cameroon fans as well yesterday given the fact that uh, they did not reach the final but still managed to be among the top three of this year's Africa Cup of Nations. This, this only gives uh, the team as well confidence going into the next assignment which is the uh, crucial qualifiers against Algeria for, for the Qatar 2022 World Cup. Lindy. Well, of course, when it comes to the AFCON, we now have two African giants that are going to go head-to-head -head in the final. What should we expect from today's match? Well, a cracker of a final. I mean, these two teams deserve... Uh, to be in the final. Or, or both of them have incentives, have uh, motivation to win this one. Senegal have been in the final twice. Uh, they, they lost both finals. This is their third time. They hope it will be, uh, third, it will be a charm for them because as they always say third time is a charm. So hopefully they can be able to uh, uh, get uh, their first uh, uh, African Cup of Nations uh, title uh, tonight. For Egypt, uh, there's been a lot of pressure on this uh, Egyptian squad. I mean, they are the record holders of this competition, but this current squad are yet uh, to win the Africa Cup of Nations. They are yet to test glory in this competition, so they're also going to be motivated uh, for tonight's match. Uh, going into the game, uh, Egypt uh, will be with tired legs, of course, because they've played 120 minutes in all three of their knockout stage uh, matches. Uh, with Senegal only playing 90 minutes, winning their game, games in regular time. So they had an extra day for uh, recovery. So they'll have extra legs going into this match. So I feel Senegal are on the upper hand going into this match, given they also have a stronger uh, bench as well uh, going, uh, going into the match. So hopefully uh, Senegal can manage to win it before uh, the penalties, because uh, we all know history says it. Egypt are very good when it comes to penalty shootouts. So if it goes the length up to the penalty uh, shootouts, Egypt might uh, have a hand in this tie. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see, Lindy. Indeed, we shall. Thank you so much, Mohamed Abubakar, live with us there in Yaoundé. Now, on the sidelines of the Winter Olympics, Chinese President Xi... Welcome back. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, a special edition of our program, and that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for today, Sunday, uh, February 6th, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition uh, of our program. And, of course, you can have access uh, to uh, this uh, program uh, by merely uh, logging on uh, to the Pan-African 
Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the uh, Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to, of course, uh, close out uh, with all the discussion uh, in this program on uh, the African Union, African unity, uh, African-American history. Uh, Today uh, represents uh, the 77th anniversary of the birth of Robert Nesta Marley, uh, Bob Marley, uh, the legendary uh, Pan-Africanist cultural icon who... um, brought uh, reggae music uh, to broader audiences around the world during the 1970s, 1980s. Marley made his transition uh, in May of 1981. He was born on February 6th of 1945. And we're going to close out with uh, one of his greatest achievements, the album uh, Survival from 1979. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Look at the blood of the sofa 